Before we get started, we want to thank our Patreon supporters and remind everyone that as a nonprofit, we rely on your help to keep making Big Biology. To support us, please consider making a recurring donation at patreon.com slash bigbio. Or instead, consider making a one-time contribution at our website, bigbiology.org. We'd really prefer not to sell bed sheets or energy drinks to keep episodes coming, but we need support for our producers and interns, most of whom are students. A different but also a very important way to help us out is to spread the word about Big Biology. Recommend the podcast to a friend or family member, or just share your thoughts about episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We want to get these ideas out to as many people as possible, and social media is a great way to do that. It also helps if you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and comment on it rate our show. And of course, if you want to hear a particular guest or an episode on your favorite topic or just have thoughts about past episodes, get in touch. You can do that on our social media pages or the email addresses on our website. Here on Big Biology, we focus on some of the biggest ideas in biology, but we don't have enough time to cover everything cool in the field. So we're trialing a new series called Little Biology, where interns talk about an idea they think deserves to be in the spotlight. We won't have an expert guest on these episodes, though. It'll just be a conversation between two interns summarizing the state of a topic. So let's get to it. Welcome to Little Biology. I'm Natasha Damray. And I'm R.B. Smith. And this episode, we'll be talking about one of our favorite horror movie tropes. Zombies! Well, specifically zombie parasites. Ever heard of zombie ants? Zombie ants are a popular dinner party conversation among biologists, one that never fails to inspire a sense of macabre and wonder. The main character of the story is the Ophiocordyceps fungus. The species in Ophiocordyceps make their living parasitizing insects, the most famous being the Ophiocordyceps unilateralis, which infects carpenter ants. The parasitic takeover begins when a carpenter ant comes across fungal spores while foraging. At first, ant life goes on as normal, but in the background, the fungus begins growing through the ant's body, consuming and colonizing tissue along the way. After about a week, the fungus manipulates the ant to abandon its day job and leave the nest. By now, the fungus has complete control over the ant, and it forces it to climb a plant to a very precise height. Once the ant reaches that right height, the fungus forces the ant to lock its mandibles permanently to the underside of a leaf. Researchers affectionately call this the death grip. The death grip secures the ant to the leaf, even as the fungus consumes the rest of the ant's tissues, leaving only the exoskeleton intact. When the feast is over, the fungus erupts through the joints of the exoskeleton and forms a tiny mushroom right above the ant's head. That mushroom then rains its spores onto the forest floor, continuing the cycle of life by infecting even more ants. It's bone chilling, or exoskeleton chilling to think about, but for a biologist, also pretty fascinating. Nervous systems are highly complex, even in insects. So how does a fungus induce such a specific sequence of behaviors in its host? How does a fungus control an ant's mind? A 2017 paper investigated just that. Researchers decapitated infected ants and cut those heads into tiny slices. They scanned each slice with an electron microscope to create a 3D model of the ant's head. They then distinguished which tissues were ant and which were fungus and they found fungus throughout the muscles that power the ant's mandibles, but not in the brain. What we think of as mind control never actually involves the brain. Instead, the fungus invades muscle bundles and encircles muscle fibers. Even during the death grip, the fungus grows only around the muscles that control the ant's mandibles, and it leaves the neurons completely untouched. 
Turns out the fungus releases vesicle-like particles that force the muscles to contract in the famous death grip, all while bypassing the nervous system entirely. We still don't know the exact mechanism that makes the ant leave the nest and climb to that precise height, but for the final moments of its life, the ant is doomed to watch in horror as its body is wrested from its control and forced to do the bidding of its fungal parasite. And you thought athlete's foot was bad. That may sound like science fiction, but zombie-inducing parasites are all over nature. For example, there's the lancet liver fluke. It infects ants and forces them to climb tall grasses where they're eaten by grazing mammals and continue the parasitic life cycle within the new host. This example is pretty similar to our zombie ants, but parasites can induce many different types of behaviors in their hosts, like some parasitoid wasps, which lay eggs in spiders. And then as the wasp larvae develop inside the spider, they make the spider spin themselves into their own comfy cocoon coffin. When one organism takes control of another's behavior to serve its own reproductive ends, biologists call it adaptive manipulation. But what is the mechanism behind that adaptive manipulation? And how can we tell when it's actually happening? When we get infected with disease-causing bacteria or viruses, our behavior changes, right? Two years ago, COVID caused people around the world to stay in their homes, but not because it hijacked our minds and forced us to watch Netflix. That's pretty clear, because behaviors like social distancing at the start of the pandemic actually impeded the spread of the virus, but other behavioral changes in response to disease could be less clear-cut. Like when we get a fever. Could that be a virus hijacking our thermoregulatory systems to optimize conditions for its own replication? Actually, no. Studies going as far back as the 70s have shown that animals produce fevers to fight off infections. They help the host survive. Remarkably, even ectotherms, things like insects or reptiles, will change their behavior to increase their body temperature and simulate a fever. In other words, when a host phenotype changes after infection, it can be hard to tell whether it's the host or the parasite that's driving that change. So how do we decide that a parasite is actively responsible for adaptive manipulation? Well, one good way is to look at the mechanism. Physiologically or biochemically, what exactly is causing the behavioral change? In the case of zombie ants, we have a clear mechanism and it's been experimentally tested. Once we have that mechanism, we can ask whether it helps the parasite to reproduce or the host to fight it off. Although we should keep in mind that it's not always that simple. It's also possible that changes in behavior aren't adaptive for either organism. Because of course biology would never be that simple. But hopefully once we have more data, we can get into the fun questions, like how in the world has such a complex system between parasite and host evolved? And how are these systems maintained over evolutionary time? We'd think that such a complex interaction like our zombie ant would break down as new mutations accumulate in the many intricate parts that the fungus uses to control the ant, unless there was some strong selection keeping it the way it was. So figuring out the evolutionary processes that keep these systems alive is another fascinating research question. So zombies, they really do exist. It sounds like science fiction, but parasites and parasitoids have evolved sophisticated ways to manipulate their hosts, which boosts their chance at reproduction. Studying this could be a challenge, though, as it's not always clear which party causes the behavioral change, the parasite or the host. Distinguishing between these two requires careful experimentation. Thankfully, physiologists are on it. But we should be careful not to jump to conclusions when news headlines announce mind-controlling parasites. We don't want to get carried away giving these zombifying parasites too much credit. At least, that's what they'd want us to think. Mm -hmm.
thanks for letting us hijack the channel. This has been Little Biology. We're trying something new here, so any feedback would be appreciated. Let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tune in next week. Art and Marty will be back with the final episode of Season 4, where they'll be chatting with Graham Scott about the evolution of complex traits, specifically the oxygen cascade. Big thanks to Art Woods, Marty Martin, Brad Von Paradin for their invaluable support and feedback. Thanks also to producer Ruth Demery, Steve Lane, who manages the website, and interns Jordan Greer and Kyle Smith, who help with social media. And huge shout out to Keating Shamiri, who produces the coolest cover art with every episode. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on this episode is by Poddington Bear and Tieran Costello. Costello.